Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm uh, one of your hosts, Rob Lawrence, and uh, I would uh, just like to set us up, first of all, for today's uh, podcast and we're going to talk about uh, EMS ID and uh, in a second we're going to introduce the guests we're going to set the topic up for you and we're going to have a great discussion uh, but first of all as always here's my mate Hillary Gates Hi mate great to be here um I'm Hillary Gates I'm the director of educational strategy for Prodigy and I am really pleased that we have with us these experts from the National Registry of EMTs to talk to us about something that all educators should know about and that is the National EMS ID so with us today we have Josh Tilton and Alan Arguello both from the NREMT as well as Heather Davis who serves on the board and I'll have them just briefly introduce themselves Josh Hi, uh, thank you for having me. So my name is Josh Tilton. I am a senior program manager here at the National Registry. A little bit about me. Uh, I did 15 years at an ISO 3 as a firefighter paramedic, and then uh, six years at an ISO 1 as an EMS educator, uh, and I was a fixed-wing flight paramedic. So uh, my undergraduate degree is in healthcare administration, and my graduate degree is in business information systems. Thanks, Josh. Alan? Hi, I'm excited to be here too. My name is Alan Arguello. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for the National Registry. Uh, I've been here since 2016 and uh, I've loved every minute of it. Thanks. And Heather. Hi, thank you for having me. My name is Heather Davis. I am the Director of Student Assessment at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, but this audience is probably most familiar with me in my former role as the Paramedic Program Director at UCLA and my connection to National Registry as as the immediate past chair. Been a board member for nearly 15 years, so happy to bring this topic to this audience and help educators understand what is the EMS ID and how it's important to us as educators and to the EMS audience as a large community. Wonderful. Let's do that then, Heather. Thanks for kicking it off. Let's start with what is the National EMS ID? And um, Josh, I think that's best to serve to you. Yeah. So the National EMS ID um, is a unique 12-digit identifier that is assigned to EMS clinicians in one of two ways. So uh, the first way is that it is assigned to the clinician when they create a profile here at the National Registry, or it's assigned through uh, back-end APIs. So uh, through account claim generation, uh, the API can also be assigned that way. Um, It's very similar to the NPI number in the fact that it is a identifying number that is assigned to the clinician uh, that stays with them from creation all the way through retirement. And Josh, I'll ask you to, to define NPI for those who don't know what that is. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the NPI is the National Provider Identifier that's assigned to uh, providers, uh, both physicians and advanced, advanced practice providers in the country. And it's how they bill. So are you saying that paramedics are going to be able to bill for services personally? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's the first thing I think of when I think of NPI. Great. Um, Alan, tell us about what prompted it and um, kind of the registry's idea behind this. What, give us the history of, of how it was launched. 
Yeah, I'm happy to do so. So um, the EMS ID was launched uh, January uh, 20, 23rd of 2020. And when the National Registry first invested resources into helping establish the EMS compact, the EMS compact needed a mechanism to deduplicate EMS licensure records across multiple systems. And being that states collect different pieces of, of personal information across states and individuals may have different names or different salutations across different state lines, we needed a singular identifier to deduplicate providers. And that, that identifier ultimately is what ties compact states in together. And that's the EMS ID, just that 12 digit, you know, non-descriptive number. And it, uh, if effectively it, it allows the EMS compact and its initial purpose was for the EMS compact, um, but allows the EMS compact to, to function, um, not without social security numbers, obviously, because it still uses them. But as an alternative to deduplicate um, different state license records, that was its initial purpose. Tell us more about the EMS Compact again for those who might not know. Absolutely. Um, so the EMS Compact is a licensure compact, um, very similar to other license compacts. Um, what it effectively does is, if you are a member of the EMS Compact, it allows uh, temporary portability of licensure across state lines, and it allows temporary. Um, uh, an extension of your privilege to practice into other compact states um, by using the privilege to practice that's granted by your home state. And so you you're, you essentially you have the ability to provide temporary care in other compact states outside of the state in which you hold your singular license in. How, how does that look practically? I'm like thinking about what this would look like in an actual scenario, um, perhaps during a disaster or even just during mutual aid or something like that. Is there a way you can walk us through um, how an administrator or an educator or um, I suppose maybe a chief or someone in charge would actually invoke or um, apply the EMS ID? So uh, one really important designation to make here is that the EMS ID and the EMS compact are very much separate things, uh, whereas the EMS ID is literally just a number. Um, and it's, it's about as simple as it, as it gets. It's just a 12 digit number. The EMS compact, on the other hand, enacting use of the EMS compact um, is, is actually something that is relatively simple between two compact states. And so if you have two neighboring states, both states are a member of the compact, effectively providers from the home state, um, wherein the disaster did not happen, um, can send providers through mutual aid or whichever other agreements into their neighboring state without those individuals having to go through something like EMAC or having to apply for a license. You know, generally there's a lot of communication that will occur between both state regulatory bodies. Um, but it effectively allows those individuals to, to go uh, assist in that disaster and then obviously return back to their home state pending the, the conclusion of that disaster because it is, it is not, um, and granted, I'm speaking um, not for the compact right now, obviously, because I work for registering not the compact. However, um, I, it, it allows temporary portability of licensure. It's not a, it's not a, a universal license, if that makes sense. It does. That's helpful. Just to wrap up kind of on the definitions, um, Josh or Alan, um, I have a feeling people might ask, why do I need another number? Um, or how is this different, better, or an, an adjunct to my national registry number? Um, just talk a little bit about those two um, things that 
you know, the people are definitely familiar with, um, I've memorized my national registry number so I can put it in for all my CE. Uh, why do I need another one? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start this one off and then I'll kick it over to Josh. So if you, if you compare and contrast the national registry number versus the, the EMS ID, um, the national registry number, it has descriptors to it. Um, for, for example, my national registry number is M8068882. You can tell immediately that I am a paramedic. It tells you something about me. That, but that's about the only thing it tells you. If you know how the numbers work, you know, you can, you can tell generally how long I've been a paramedic. Um, if you, if you, if you know when those, uh, if you know when those numbers have reset. Um, but, um, you can, it has descriptors to it. It's the national registry number's sole purpose is to let entities of all sorts know this individual is either a current or former nationally certified paramedic. Um, that is the purpose of the national registry number period. The EMS ID, however, has uh, what I would call a universal purpose or an intended universal purpose, wherein it's the number itself is not meant to denote anything about an individual. It is meant to tie together um, disparate systems. And its purpose is to allow this same sort of, it, it, to allow identification between different systems and inter, what I would call interoperability, ultimately to, to link together education, certification, licensure, and care. And I, I, I pivot to Josh now for a more articulate uh, response. No. So that's exactly right. So EMS ID does a couple of things. Number one, it uh, by itself has no identifying information. So uh, it it protects uh, personal identifying information or PII. So there's no PII directly correlated with the number by itself. You can leave it sit on the table and it is violates no, no regulations. Um, and without a secure web API client, secure client secret and credentials, <clears throat> it's essentially worthless. Um, the beauty of it, though, is, is as that's the primary relational key in databases, um, it is specifically tied to a clinician. And through these secure uh, web API transmissions in the databases themselves, you can actually string together uh, information. So as Alan alluded to, one of the things that's, that's beautiful about it is, you know, I, I could use this number to, to keep track of, of anything from my career uh, when I entered as a, as a student all the way through retirement. And there's, there's nothing identifying about the number itself until it's utilized inside one of the databases. Excellent. Um, Rob has some questions for you on, on, uh, kind of the benefits of this, um, for different folks. So I'll kick it over to him for the next section. Thanks Hillary. And uh, if you're listening also, you can just a little resource for you. If you want to read more about the EMS compact, actually the website is very easy to remember. It's emscompact.gov. So uh, go look that up. And, uh, as usual, we'll put all of the uh, notes and contacts and links in the show notes. Benefits of EMS ID. So for educators, program directors, those in charge, how does this help them? How is it going to help them do what they need to do? 
So I'll take that if I may. Uh, at least I'll start with the educator program director piece. I um, one of the reasons that Maya and I and Hillary and I we were talking about this podcast and why it might be helpful to have educators understand how they can utilize the EMS ID or help support it in their state. Um, because while registry has implemented the national EMS ID as a way to you know facilitate the uh, functions of the compact and the National Association of State EMS officials. Um, their executive uh, directors, their uh, executive um, group has, you know, supports the idea, the implementation really will need to occur at the state level. And so that each state or territory will begin implementation in their states as they see fit. Um, so that, of course, always requires support within the state and less opposition. And I think as educators and program directors understand how it could be useful, it's easier for them to get on board. And so from an educator or program director perspective, um, what's helpful for us is the opportunity to learn more about the learners who are coming into our education system. It, um, if learners ha- um, create an EMS ID, if they create a national registry account, essentially, or a national EMS ID, and are is- uh, account if in, are issued a national EMS ID from the moment they are accepted into a program at any level. So whether it's a, a EMR course, an EMT course, a AEMT course, or paramedic course, um, they will be issued a national EMS ID number. And now we know something about that learner. So remember, the information that they put into the system is self-reported. So nobody's guessing about their age or their race, ethnicity, or any of the demographic information that we might want to know about groups of learners. And the reasons that they uh, either stay or leave the system. So there's been a lot of speculation about this pathway into our workforce and where folks are leaving the pathway or sort of where is the pathways leaking, if you will. Um, And right now we have a lot of guesses because there isn't a great way to track the folks that are leaving, particularly if they never make it to create the application for certification or licensure. And in some states, if they're taking a state exam, then only the state holds that information and it never makes it into the national databases where we might have national reporting information. And so right now we have, again, to Alan's point, all these disparate systems for collecting information. So when we have organizations that are asking, and particularly some of our federal partners who are asking, prove that this is a problem. Where is your evidence that you have a workforce issue? Or where is your evidence that you need more um, or that you need funding to address these issues? We're having a hard time sometimes demonstrating where that problem is occurring. And from the solutions perspective, sometimes I think we're guessing at what the solution might be when we're not exactly sure who and where are we losing folks. So is it a pre-matriculation problem? Folks are getting accepted into programs and they don't enter. What could those barriers be? If we understood who's getting accepted, but they never actually start the program, what do those folks look like? Then we could start to actually address it. Is it because we have requirements like you have to have a driver's license, you have to have this 
paperwork or this credential, then maybe we could start figuring out how to include those as part of the program instead of as pre-matriculation requirements, if that's the issue. But we don't know if that's the issue because we don't know if that's where we're losing folks because we have no way to track those people right now. We just know that they were accepted. We accept. In fact, I was just talking with a program two weeks ago that said we accepted uh, we accepted 42 knowing that we only have seats for 36 because we expect to lose that many before the first day of class. Why, I said, and they're like, yeah, a variety of reasons things happen. We can solve for a variety of things, a variety of reasons things happen. And so I think we're sometimes uh, guessing at solutions, which means we're not really hitting the nail on the head. And so if we want to solve some of these um educator issues, learner issues, but eventually I think they become workforce issues. I think we need to get a little bit um, better about collecting the data. Now for accredited paramedic programs, I think folks are going to say, wait a minute, I have always known where am I losing my students, but that's at the paramedic level and that's for accredited paramedic programs. That's quite different for non-paramedic level programs because the reporting has been done for wherever, at whatever your state requires. And that information is all different depending on whether your state requires reporting to the Department of Education or whether they require it to the state EMS office and whether they require it at the first day of class or the drop deadline, which might be three weeks into class or whether they require it on the last day of class or who took the licensing exam. And those are all very different points in the program. And so now if this um, catches on and all the states implement and we have a system in which people create their account and are issued a national EMS ID, the moment that they are accepted into a program, we will have information about all of our learners in the system. Um, I call it cradle to grave, but sometimes people don't like that like that saying. So let's call it pre-matriculation to retirement. We'll know something about folks from the moment they are thinking about entering our profession, which clearly all of us love because we're still here well into our um, working years, let's call it. Um, and, and, you know, there's something about it that we love in, you know, well into, you know, folks' working years or retirement. So let me just cut back in there because the first half of your answer there didn't hit my educator half of my head. It hit the government affairs half of my head, which as many people know is the other half of my job here. And of course, what we're really bad at in EMS is money and people, right? We when when a government when an elected official says, "Well, how much is does EMS in the EMS industry or profession make and earn?" We don't know because we don't have a cost collection survey. Um, how many medics do you have? Well, if you're talking about the Counts Act, when is a firefighter a paramedic? When is a paramedic a firefighter? Or how many people do you have? Well, depends who you ask. And so this is absolutely vital work to answer at least one of those two questions. And uh, so you know it, it's important and. Uh, so that's education. That's providing. I would have to bring politics into it. Sorry, out there. But uh, what about for the person, the medic, the individual themselves? What are the kind of you know the the, the mass benefits? I think we've already stated them, but let's just I drill down into the into the person. So when we when we think about the EMS ID and what what its true use is, you know, the EMS ID's benefits to the individual um, right now are. are still kind of coming coming into focus because the focus of the EMS ID right now is primarily on gaining insights um, into the workforce. So 
Um, if I'd, I'd like to pivot from that question and come back to to the individual, if that's okay. So, um, you know, concerns about workforce health and attrition, they continue to rise. Um, you know, they've not stalled. They can they continue to rise as well as concerns about the quality of education that people are, uh, are receiving, as well as provider credentialing. And to a certain extent, even the, the patient care that's provided in a, in a pre-hospital setting, all these different things. And, you know, when we think about um, workforce health and workforce attrition, you hear these buzzwords that have kind of started to come out. Well, it's you know, it's not it's it's not a, a workforce shortage. It's a it's a distribution problem. And and I say that kind of tongue in cheek because nobody knows exactly what that means. Um, they they and, and the, the reason it's called a distribution problem is because while you have a record number of individuals who are becoming certified uh, by the National Registry, we can look across quite a few different states and see the license numbers stalling in some places and in some places actually going down. And so the biggest questions, as particularly as it relates to workforce, is where? Um, and at present, we don't have the ability to do that um, because we don't necessarily utilize a, um, a, a national identifier that can help us look across these, uh, these, these different systems. With those things in mind, um, there's there's kind of a question that uh, it, this is going to sound very conceptual, but uh, the question really is, what is emergency medical services? Like, how are we defining emergency medical services right now? And I know that's a banger. That's a banger question to even consider. But, you know, if you're seeing things through the traditional lens, it's it's what happens it's behind the two doors of an ambulance or what happens on a rotor or fixed wing ambulance, period. Um the um, and obviously there there's there's a few tertiary areas to that, such as in the fire service. Um, but ultimately, we know that there are individuals who are working in these non-traditional settings. They're working. They're working in clinics. They're working in the emergency rooms, ICUs to a good extent because there are workforce um, concerns across other members of the allied health profession where we know that EMS providers, clinicians are, are moving into to, to try to work now. Um, with that, I think for for the use of the EMS ID, that is the immediate benefit to um, to the, the workforce in general, but also to the individual clinician, because we know that clinicians right now at present, the individuals, we know that they're struggling. We know that right now the job is particularly hard. We know that agencies are understaffed. Um, we know that that makes, you know, per unit call volumes go up significantly. So. Um, ultimately, the long term benefit to the clinician is us being able to understand these workforce dynamics so that we can actually act on them. And I'll, I'll pivot to, to Josh here, who may have some 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 more micro level examples of how it may benefit the individual clinician. Yeah, absolutely. And again, uh, you know, some of this is going to be theoretical frameworks, but it's all very probable and, and possible in implementation. But when you look at the individual and you look at EMS ID and you look at that being able to be the primary key to communicate across databases, um, it has impacts on the individual level, such as, uh, you know, I, I sit for a continuing education course. My EMS ID is the primary identifying key. So now I don't have to do any manual entry that can go across learning management systems. It can go across other databases. It can come uh, into transcripts. And that can all be seamlessly integrated so that it doesn't, uh, you know, this is my 21st year as a, as a paramedic. And every couple of years when I renew my, my registry and my state license, I have to sit down and duplicate effort on manual entry. 
So EMS ID as, as the primary database key would have the ability to make that seamless. Um, the other, some of the other futuristic uh, frameworks that could come into play when we look at this is when we look at things like deployment, um, you know, uh, I sat in the EOC in Baton Rouge for hours uh, checking in for Katrina. But, um, you know, it, it, it's bigger than, than just EMS as well when we look at things like emergency management and how that impacts that. Because now the, the verification process for licensure and certification goes from hours long to minutes long. So as we look at EMS ID across the industry and across the profession, the individual clinician uh, hasn't really realized the full benefits of it yet, but, but they're coming, they're there. And I'm thinking too about our military partners who often have a hard time transitioning back to a civilian role and capitalizing on the training that they received with a national EMS ID that may make it more seamless. There's opportunities there. And literally we have thousands of folks exiting the military and looking for where is their home in civilian EMS. There's, there's, you know, opportunity um, there for folks, but also, also, we've been talking a lot about when, when folks leave, where, what is that path, you know, where, where is the pathway leaking? But what about folks who stay and how do they find career um, engagement and delight? And like I mentioned, all of us stayed, but what are we doing? Um, and there's been a lot of talk about, well, folks are not on an ambulance. The states have been publishing. Only half of our workforce has filled out a PCR in the last year. With a national EMS ID number, we would be able to know where are those folks if we're, they're not on an ambulance are they in an administrative position are they teaching now have they moved into clinic care where is our workforce and I think to Rob's point about helping the folks who are working on labor statistics and understanding we're, if we're training in a pre-hospital care environment or what we're calling EMS education, if we're that's where we're training folks, but they're then supplying other parts of the healthcare workforce, um, that will be important, I think, for us to understand, both from an education standards kind of perspective, but also when we think about uh, funding for those kinds of positions. Right now, when you think about supervision for your paramedic students in a clinical environment, um, compared to the model used in, say, nursing education um, to take folks into a clinical environment. Those are very different experiences. And so thinking about where folks stay, how fo what we're doing in education later, where folks are using our pre-hospitally pre trained folks in a workforce um, in different environments, um, I think it will just be important to understand, and this will help us do that, and it will be help helpful to the individual provider, um, and especially if their first love was pre-hospital care, but they've moved into other environments because the schedule is better, the working conditions are better, the pay is better. Um, if they want to sort of come home to EMS, we may be able to correct some of those things with information when we think of information as power to educate those legislators, those regulators, and the folks that control some of those purse, purse strings. Excellent, Heather. Thank you for that. Uh, before we carry on, we're just going to stop and have a word from our sponsor, EMS Gives Life. Hello, I'm Christine Victor, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. 
At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you will go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you. As always, thank you, Christine. Uh, you can get all the links in the show notes. Uh, it's an amazing uh, organization and uh, one that you should think about supporting if you can. Um, also, Hillary, I want to give a plug to something that we did uh, in the week, and that was the 15th episode of Real Emergency. Now, we operate on this podcast in the audio realm, but Real is very much in the video realm where people can actually see um what an amazing show and of course uh, you host that i mean tell us all about it for those that maybe haven't watched real emergency well we we at prodigy are so thrilled to be partnered with uh three amazing uh physicians and a paramedic um that's uh, Peter Antevi, Mark Peel, David Spiro and Zach Dunlap and we all work together to get uh real footage of real patients real calls from body cams and otherwise and we do this awesome uh, 300 person review of cases live. Um, it's so thrilling. And we got to do this 15th episode during EMS week. And uh, it was kind of a um, good sampling of all the, all the things we've learned over the past two years doing it. Um, it's really a wonderful experience for educators. And one of the things we're hearing and we knew was going to happen, and it's probably my greatest accomplishment with that, with that vodcast is that educators are using it in the classroom. And so we uh, had a guest the other day, um, or sorry, an audience member who said, yeah, we play this every time you guys, you know, publish one of these, we play this for our continuing ed and we discuss the case and that's exactly what it's for. And uh, I don't know um, how to say it um, more succinctly than this, but if you have an opportunity to teach a concept using a real patient video, you must. Excellent. I totally agree. And uh, you, you, you're front of house and James and I sit sort of behind the curtain doing the tweeting and the and the, the coordinating, but it's an amazing show to be involved with. And it's going global, Hillary. I mean, this last episode, we had not only people, but contributors from South Africa, from uh, United Arab Emirates and from Italy. Uh, and so folk are, are, are tuning in because, of course, if you watch the live version, you get CE as well. But also there's a YouTube channel and that's where the, the classroom bit comes in because you can just tune in to Real Emergency on YouTube. Again, links in the show notes and you can use it as part of your training and education efforts. So that's pretty cool. Um, that's enough about us, though, Hillary. Let's get back to to uh, EMS Educator, and uh, why don't you pick us up and kick us off for part two? Yeah, I mean, the the nuggets we've just heard from our guests are, are absolutely astounding. I think um, you I just, just call them knowledge of, bombs. But knowledge the bombs. Break. They've, they've dropped them. Uh, I literally am making a list over here furiously. Um, Heather said half the workforce of um, EMS clinicians have probably not filled out a PCR in the past year. Um, 
Raise your hand if that applies to you on this podcast. All five of us. Oh, not Josh. Josh filled that one. Four out of five of us have not done that. Do I still call myself a paramedic? Yes. If someone digs down and says, Hillary, when's the last time you took care of a patient? I say, eh, it's been a few years. Um, I heard someone the other day call themselves a couch paramedic. I don't know if I want to say that uh, about myself, but um, maybe a desk paramedic. But a couch um, than armchair, let me tell you. Okay. But as Heather's point so beautifully illustrates, we have moved into other realms of this and our, our great love and the thing that kicked us off was this pre-hospital education. And um, I love this notion that we are going to use this national EMS ID to not only figure out what uh, makes people leave the profession, but to help those who stay, like like us, uh, who have stuck around in the EMS realm, but may not actually be, as Alan so eloquently put it, uh, providing care in the back of the ambulance or on a fixed or rotor ring wing aircraft. And so I think that one of the things I'm learning about this initiative is that there's more to come and that there is some really exciting data. Uh, Heather spoke like a true researcher because she is one um, that we can't, um, we can't measure anything if we're not collecting data and we can't make conclusions on anecdote, even though we love doing that at the kitchen table. Um, and so, you know, let's talk about other things that the national registry has in mind, uh, Josh and Alan for, what this will do for us in the future, besides maybe just the education piece and besides the um, workforce piece, maybe anything around um, mobile integrated healthcare, community paramedicine, um, any other stuff with interagency um, operability, you know, EMS compact, what else, what else should we look forward to? I have a couple of things I'd like to share. Uh, admittedly, I I would not be the best person to be speaking on mobile mobile integrated health or, com, or community paramedicine. Admittedly, it's not my area of expertise. Um, but outside of, of of educational outcomes for all certification levels and and workforce dynamics like the stay and leave dynamics, um, there's also um, elements of design intervention um, for emergency medical services that, that can be considered. And so um, just uh, as an example, remember the EMS ID has the ability to tie in uh, desperate systems. And so you're tying in, you know, what, like this, it, I'm going to use, uh, I'm going to speak on the basis of an individual right now, but obviously we mean this uh, for, for anyone, but um, with, these systems tied together, you can you potentially would be able to see not only where an individual um, is addressed, but also where they are working um, versus the distribution of care that an individual actually provides. And so you obviously remember, we, no one would ever be looking at it at a singular individual. People are looking at things from like the very macro level. You want to see the distribution of patient care. And so um, you could evaluate the, the distribution of emergency medical um, services through geospatial mapping, um, through use of the EMS ID. And that actually can help to make better estimates um, as it relates to enhancing disaster preparedness for disaster modeling, because you would understand what the actual EMS distribution is in that area, you know. So uh, as an example, we have in, in this area over here, wow, we have 30,000 people who are who are certified um, nationally. Within those 30,000 people, only 20,000 of those individuals actually hold a state license. Within those 20,000 individuals, oh my gosh, only 15,000 of those individuals 
individuals filled out a patient care report and only 5,000 of those individuals filled out more than one. It wasn't just the person on the sprint car who showed up at the call. And so really our, our insights and our ability to be able to act on this data, it has been relatively limited. We've made a lot of, of inferences based on data that we have not had and we have the potential to have it now. And for me, uh, I have my undergraduate studies are in critical infrastructure protection. And so I am remarkably passionate about these sorts of things. And I think that that for me is, is one of the ones that is the most exciting because it provides a benefit to municipal, local, state and federal partners in being able to one, protect everybody and the individual. Um, but I think that's a super, um, uh, just a super uh, exciting aspect. Josh, I, I don't know if you want to jump on anything else. From a data perspective, it's limitless on what it can tie together and it's limitless on, on what we can use it for. The limiting factor is the adaptation. So, um, you know, as it becomes more widespread, we'll have access to better data, cleaner data, cleaner data. Um, you know, we'll be able to produce everything from the, I mean, it, it'll be helpful for everyone from a QAQI through administrative, through, uh, you know, national and state level. Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, kind of comes to mind with, um, EMS ID and, and nationwide data is, you know, we know that scope of practice varies widely at the advanced EMT level. Um, with the uh, adaptation of EMS ID, there's a lot more data that we can we can look at with that as it pertains to what level of care is being provided where, and it allows for us to clean the data in ways that we wouldn't before. So, for instance, we know through um, national databases that uh, an AMT may be providing care in state A. Um, as well as state B, well, both of those scopes could vary wildly differently. So when we look at the data and we start to clean it up, we may be able to, to maybe exclude that data set as a duplicate so that we have, um, you, you know, just a cleaner uh, sense of what's, what's happening. Something else that I want to make sure that we hit on uh, while we're here um, is a, a couple of shout outs that, that I want to give to a couple of entities. Uh, and those, uh, those entities are Washington, D.C. and the state of Florida. As it relates to pioneering use of the EMS ID within their own individual state processes, Washington, D.C. has made it a component within their licensing system. And they've also started implementing use of the EMS ID on their CEU uh, certificates and documentation. Likewise, Within the state of Florida right now, they're making efforts to try and incorporate the EMS ID earlier into the student education process. So when their individual students first sign up for their EMS education program, um, the intent is for those first to be granted an EMS ID right from the get go. So I wanted to make sure that we recognize uh, those two authorizing agencies because it, it, it really is a great use of the EMS ID across the, the licensing and education spectrum. To Alan's point about, I think he said, I'm going to speak to the individual, but that really was a systems and said, you know, planning for a municipality, planning for a government agency, being able to plan at the chief level, what resources do I have? Who's go actually going to be able to respond? And there is something about when there's a disaster, people sort of come out of the woodwork and, and say, oh, I want to help, but can you actually use those people? But I think when we uh, bring it back to the individual, 
school. Um, the fact of the matter is you probably live in the area in which you're certified and so does your family. And many of us got into this industry because we wanted to help people. And so if you're thinking about is the area in which I, in which I work protected, will there be, and if I'm a, if I'm away at work, will there be responders available to help take care of my family? If I'm in the neighboring community providing care, those are the kinds of things that I think Alan is alluding to that we will be able to understand when we think about how can we move the workforce around? How can we recruit? How can we ensure that it doesn't look like we have enough providers in an area because we have 30,000 certified in a particular geographical area, but it turns out only 5,000 of those are going to be able to provide 24 seven care. And then when we think about then resourcing them and outfitting them with the equipment and the supplies and the, you know, tools that they will need to do their job and not just in disaster time, but also what we're seeing now in terms of everyday kinds of, can we staff the shifts? Can we get an ambulance out when we need it? A, a properly staffed ambulance. We've you know seen now where folks are changing their staffing, changing their um, shift. Uh, I just came from a, a state where they were telling me about the kinds of um, changes to 72 hour shifts because they're having trouble staffing and th- that's what they're having to do to recruit. Um, and I asked again, I asked, you know, how, how is that working safety wise? Have you, you know, th- those kinds of questions that will come up as a result. And they're like, well, in a year, we'll look back and tell you how it's going. Um, and hopefully that there won't be any sort of catastrophes or critical incidents in that year that, you know, well, tell me about next year when I go visit. There. And in one one thing uh, in this, I don't want to say this is my final closing note because this isn't my podcast. Um, but my one note that I will make um, is that something we we talk about all the time is you know a systems approach. Um, you know, it's it's the it's the thing we 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 hear all the time, and that systems approach it expands to all elements of emergency medical services. But really, when we think of that system. You know, we're thinking about the educators, we're thinking about the certifiers, we're thinking about the licensors, and we're thinking about the agencies at which this care is actually provided. And finally, the the student, the candidate, the 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 clinician themselves, the administrators, all those who power that entire system. The EMS ID, I truly do believe, is the thing that ties that system together and allows that system to actually work as a system. Um, our pathway to rigorous population-based evaluations to address the health and wellness of our workforce and our profession, I do believe will come from the EMS ID. Beautifully stated. Go ahead, Heather. We've been talking a lot about what is the benefit to the individual? What is the benefit to the system? But I want to make sure that we bring it back to what is the benefit to the patient? And I know that we know that patients are more likely to call for service. They're more likely to seek care if their provider looks like them and speaks their language. And this is one of the ways in which we can ensure that we're helping to make a system that is equitable, accessible, 
accessible, diverse, and represents the communities that we're providing patient care to. Right now, we're having a bit of a hard time figuring out. I mean, we sort of know what what our workforce looks like, and it doesn't look like many of the communities that we're serving. And folks, when they're not certain or not comfortable with the folks who are providing care to them, they tend to delay care. We know we have lots of disparities in care. Um, But if we could figure out where are we losing those folks that we are trying to recruit, I think we have a better opportunity to create a place where folks feel a sense of belonging, where they are happy and engaged, where we can hang on to them. And then when they reach out to the community, they better reflect the communities that they're serving. So there's an opportunity, I think, to um, engage with the community and provide different and better and um, more um, congruent patient care than we have ever before. And I think that that's another benefit. And I want to always make sure that we're thinking again about how does it come back to really high quality patient care. Josh, over to you. Yeah, thank you again for having me today. Uh, I would just like to close with this. Um, EMS ID is going to be the thing that allows us to carry EMS into the next generations, but it's, it's much bigger than EMS itself. And through the collaboration of all the makeup of EMS, the fire service, the EMS service, private, third party, fixed wing, rotor wing, um, industrial, we, we have the ability to take EMS ID in any direction that uh, they need, and we can tailor it uh, as, as needed to collect data like we've never been able to before. Um, it truly is going to be the, uh, the Leatherman of data. <laughs> so um, very excited to see the future. Josh, thank you for that. And, uh, you know, you just added yet another pearl of wisdom. And uh, I love being involved with the EMS Educator podcast because I get to listen to you all at least two or three more times before we hit broadcast in in the edit process. But actually, it cements in all of those lessons that uh, you've just imparted, certainly on me, and I know our, our listeners. So thank you all very much for that. Talking of listening, if you are listening, please take a moment to like, a rate, subscribe to us on the platform that you're listening to us on, and we're on many, many platforms. Uh, just a top tip, if you're, what, for example, if you are on Apple Podcasts, take a look in the top right-hand corner. There's a little plus sign. If you hit that plus sign, it means you have subscribed, and therefore it will notify you every time a new episode of the EMS Educator Podcast comes along. So hit that plus sign, like, subscribe, rate, review, five stars. And with that, over to you, Hillary, to bring us home. We always want to uh, have contact details for our guests in case uh, people want to get in touch. So um, just quickly, uh, Josh, how can people follow you or uh, get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, they can feel free to email me at jtilton at nremt.org. Um, I'm always accessible. I, uh, I take about one vacation a year where I don't have my work phone with me. Uh, my wife loves that. So uh Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Josh. Alan, how about you? Uh, Similar to Josh, uh, my email is jtilton. I'm just kidding. It's Ah. first initial, last name. Uh, It's uh, A Arguello. So it's A A R G U E L L O at nremt.org. I'll I'll answer it during work hours, unlike Josh. (laughs) And Heather. 
Very good. My email has been the same for more than 20 years. It's hdavis at mednet.ucla.edu. Thanks. You know, I'd like to close by saying that we have a champion, a caretaker, a data collector, an analyzer, a grandparent in the NREMT. For those who tend to think of our acronyms or our um, accrediting agencies or the larger bodies as out of touch or on high and not really paying attention to what the everyday clinician is doing on the ground, uh, I beg to differ. I think this podcast tells us that we are being looked after and that people who have a lot of experience, a lot of expertise, and a lot of genuine care for our profession are doing the things to help us be better and do what is ultimately the thing that we all want to do, which is provide quality care for our patients. So I want to thank the NREMT. I want to thank our guests for being here today. Rob, take us home. Well, you took us home. I'll just put this in the garage then. So uh, once again, it's been an amazing episode of the EMS Educator Podcast. Uh, Thank you, Hillary. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Alan. And thank you, Heather. And uh, we'll be back real soon with another edition. But don't forget, hit like and subscribe. This has been the EMS Educator Podcast. And to all of you out there, bye for now.